But he begins, he lays down in verse 1, the theological plank, here surely God is good to Israel. It's like he's quoting a catechism. We don't memorize that like we to our to our loss like they did in one day, the shorter Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's a great catechism. And the longer one, these succinct statements of doctrinal belief. We go like, well, we're not into that. And then it's no wonder we're real fuzzy and unsure on our doctrinal clarity. But uh, that's what it seems like he's doing. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the, the triunity of the Godhead. Uh, it's like he's making a theological play. Surely God is good to Israel. Only one problem with that, and he speaks so honestly, it just didn't seem to be the way life really was. Down in the trenches. It seemed upside down. It seemed like those that named the name of the Lord, we would say those that know Jesus as Savior, they tend to suffer more, and they seem to have more against them. seem overwhelmed. While those that don't make any pretension of knowing Christ, it seems to go well. They seem to, the, their eyeballs are bulging. The, that's a picture of, of utter prosperity. They have so much food. Now, in our day, you know, we think like, well, you know, doesn't everybody live like this? You know, I, I had to laugh. I told you that one time. I heard the story that. The, uh, the two Africans were talking. They said, well, I want to I go to America. Well, why do you want to do that? Because even the, even the poor people are fat. And we go like, well, that, well that's funny and all that. And that well, in a, for, for human history, that was a sign of wealth. If you had more than enough to eat, you were heavier. And here the idea is your eye, you have so much food, your eyes are bulging. It's a picture of blessing and, and prosperity and plentiful Believe me, it's the opposite. When you don't have enough to eat and your eyes are sunken into your head, what's the matter? Don't you have enough to eat? Yes, no, I don't. I'm poor. You see, that's the picture he, he presents here. How can this be true if God is a God of justice? God is certainly good to his own, verse 1. Yet uh, I, Asaph, I doubted this. In God's moral universe, he expected God to bless the righteous always and to always punish the wicked. The only problem is that today is not the judgment today. Today is a day of mercy. God is extending mercy. The fact that he allows men and women who do not know Jesus to save live one more moment is merciful on his part. And to allow a moment of success as man counts success is mercy on God's point. Because the day is coming when it will drop like a curtain at the end of a play and it will be no more. It will be no more. It's only for a moment. Well, his problem was deeper than just theological plank in verse 1. Verse 3, now he finds himself, he's envying the uh, godless, the wicked. He, he resents the fact that God allowed the situation to, to continue in verse 3. God was not treating him in the way he deserved. Well, I deserve better than this. You've never said that, but there are some that that strut about like that. I'm one of God's children. I'm redeemed. I belong to the Lord. I'm his child. I deserve better than this. Let me hasten ahead and just point out to you, never forget Calvary here. I mean, the greatest one who ever lived, the wheels of injustice and hatred 
ran over him and killed him at Calvary's cross. And out of the most heinous crime ever committed under the sovereign plan of God, the death of Jesus, the very best thing that could ever came came from that. If you were to look at it at the moment, you would have said, what's going on here? He is the Emmanuel. He's the Christ, the Lord of glory, the promised one, the Lamb of God. That's why Peter couldn't understand when, when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, and here's Peter. Like he'd be us, right? Not not having a clue as to what God, you know, Lord, this shouldn't, and it says he rebuked him. Peter's rebuking the Lord Jesus. That should not be so. Little did Peter realize that if, if he had taken his advice, there would be no salvation for Peter, none. Or for you or for me, you say, Lord, don't go, don't go. Stay alive, stay with us, Lord. It would have been no salvation whatsoever. You know, the worst thing in this fallen world that could have ever happened, a Humpty Dumpty upside down, God brings the very greatest of things, the treasure of the gospel. And it's for all of us, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ the Lord as Savior, it's a free gift of salvation, paid in full by God himself. God the Son gave his own life. And so this is not simply an academic exercise. This is something the Lord suffered and experienced to the hilt of hilt. He gave his all. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I deserve better than this, Asaph thought. I'm one of God's. I'm a son of the king here. Why am I having such a horribly hard time? And then in his envy, verses 4 to 12 he looks at the godless around him, and he describes in these verses seven characteristics of their apparent. I say that apparent because it's only as what you and I look at, and we do that, don't we? We'll see someone in our neighborhood, and, and they have no cool, no desire as far as we know of things got him. Maybe they're even, even quite, uh, uh, quite militant against Christ, in this, and they seem to be so happy. You know, you and they seem, it seems to going so well. And, oh, yes, you got a bonus at work. And then they're doing, ah, oh, it's just, oh. And it, apparent. You, we don't know what's going on in their heart. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. But that's Asaph. He's like, there. look at their prosperity. It's enormous. In verses 4 and 5, the wicked don't seem to suffer any trouble, or so it seemed. Isn't that something? Trouble fee living. And sometimes... It seems that some have, it says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They have more than enough. That's the idea. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. I mean, it's going well for the, for the godless. In verses 6, verse six, the godless are proud. They're engaging in violence to further themselves. And pride is their necklace. I mean, they're really something. Or so they think in, uh, in their apparent prosperity. It seems to him that their evil a activities, verse 7, know no limits. I mean, the, the depths of their depravity. Yeah, there's that, verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly or foolishness. I mean, there's like no end to it. The verse, uh, verse 8 and 9, the words are arrogant, malicious as they strut about as if they own the earth. That's what he's talking about in the end of verse 9. 
I mean, these are the, uh, the characteristics uh, of, of the prosperity of, uh, of, the, of those that know not God, know not Christ, according to Asaph. They presume, uh, verse 11, and they're thinking that God is ignorant of their ways. They say, well, how can God know? It's rhetorical. He doesn't know what I do. He doesn't care. If, if there is a God, I just go do what I want to do. Or does God know? That's verse 11. Like he isn't uh, even aware of their plight or their life or any of that. Uh, in verse 12, they seem to have the good life. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. Now we know that that's not so. But in his confusion, and as he want, was wandering away from the text, surely God is good to Israel, uh, and it, as he began to look at them, and in his envy, which is a criticism of God, God, I deserve better, he ended up with a distorted view of those that were around. His perspective was skewed. Their, their lives are not always at ease, but uh, in his uh, way of thinking here. He had uh, convinced himself that they've got it pretty good. The good life, verse 12, or so it seemed. You ever watch that show, uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous? I know folks used to watch that. And Who was that British uh, narrator with that? Anybody remember? Yeah, Robin Leach. That's right. Thanks. So you watched it, huh? <laughs> Yeah, we all did, John. We all, you know, lives of the rich and the famous, you know, and everybody would be peering over there watching it and all that. And uh, that's sort of what, that's what Asaph's doing. He's like peering in. He's watching Robin on there. He goes like, yep, not me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish, oh, I'd give anything for that. Oh, they got the good life, or so it seems. And in verses 13 to 16, he closes a section. He confesses with great honesty his confusion over life. What's the point in being godly, he's saying? In vain, he says in, in verses 13 and 14, in vain or for naught I have kept myself pure. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had stood in church and during Dave asked for a testimony, let me give you a testimony. That's, what, that's the idea. Let me speak this to uh, those of the redeemed. I would have, if I had spoken and said really what I was thinking, it would have disheartened the hearts of those that heard it and maybe led some astray. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me. It was wearisome. And often in our fallen world, the world seems like that. It does. It's the book of Ecclesiastes again and again and again. Trying to understand life, you can't do it. You can't in this fallen, upside-down world. We walk by faith. We trust in the Lord who suffered, who died, who did the great. And he is leading us along for his glory, even though bad stuff happens. I mean, Asa began to think, I'm on the wrong team. I should be on the other side. They're getting blessed, and I am not. The book of Ecclesiastes Puts it this way, and one little say, the race is not always is not to the swift. It means that 
uh, with the Olympics coming up and all the trials going on, and maybe some of you follow that, you know, the race is not to the swift. If, if you were a betting man or woman, you look at who's got the fastest time trials, and you go like, that's where my $10 is. It's on that one. He's won the national. He won the world last year. Put my $10 on that if you were a betting person. But Ecclesiastes says, the race is not to the swift, is it? You would think so. I mean, the odds are in their favor. But what? Stuff happens. Day before, he's outstretching. She's outstretching. Pulls a hamstring. In the middle of the race, all of a sudden, knots up, off the side, down and out. The one that you said it was a sure win, it was a shoe win, didn't win. And in that little capsule, because you can't understand life as it is in a fallen world, the way it is, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. It's an upside-down world with tears and brokenness and loss and heartache and medical issues and disappointment with people and jobs and bosses and families and, and need I say more. It goes on and on and on and on. Even Joseph said, you meant it for evil, my brothers. God meant it for good. You figure that one out. Twelve years in jail. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Wow. That's the world we live in, folks. That's it. I could tell one story after another. Tears and heartache and loss. And didn't see that one coming. And, and we can't keep our perspective only on the here and the now and the immediate. But we walk as children of faith, knowing, trusting God who is in charge of all things, even, and he doesn't, he doesn't check with me first. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of times we do that. Lord, <clears throat> we pray that. Lead me, Lord. And we're, we say, <clears throat> show me your plan, and, and uh, I want to approve it first. <laughs> if I approve it, then go and do it, you know. He doesn't do that. I, I told you the story before about my friend Jerry Walden. And he had what I call a total loss. In 1988, I happened to be in Indiana. I knew Jerry. He's pastored in Indiana, went to Grace Seminary. And um, his wife and his three children. And I got word that she was driving the kids to uh, school one day in the morning. Came up over a ridge. And uh, there was another car, two, boy, two cars racing the other way from the high school. And they were in each lane over the And here she comes driving her kids. And the cars are close. Head-on accident. And killed Jerry's wife and his three children instantly. I, I had been out speaking in Indiana. I was up in South Bend. And I was flying out of Fort Wayne to get back to Clark Summit then in uh, I was in Warsaw, Indiana, made a point because I happened to be there in the state the morning of the funeral. And I, I'll never forget, hundreds and hundreds of people there. And uh, it's something when you pull up to a church uh, having a, and see four hearses outside. I, I never saw that before, never saw it since. 
and they had the, uh, the certain color ones for the children. And I went in there because I had to get to the airport. I only had a little bit of time. I went in, people everywhere, everywhere. And uh, I found the pastor, and then I found Jerry and just hugged him and embraced. He wept and wept and wept and wept. And uh, that's what I call a total loss. I talked to him later. How do you go home? Everything was left just the way the kids left it and his wife. Everything from toast on the counter to toothbrushes at the sink and, and uh, so on. You can't explain it. Here's a man dedicated to the ministry of the gospel. Faithful pastor. Lost everything except his God. And, and, and through these years, and you too, you've seen losses and heartache and tears. And so where's God? God is surely good, is he? Doesn't look like it in Jerry's case, does it? You see? So how, how well, it's our old friend that helps us here. And oh, do we need help. Otherwise, we just pitch it and jump off a cliff or end it or something. You, you know, it's hard. Stuff happens. Tears flow. I didn't see that coming. And so the second perspective, verse 17 to the end, is, is the proper way to view life is to see it from God's perspective. And that's where our brother here helps us so much. He says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood therein. Truly you set them, the godless, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to, ru to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away uh, utterly by tears like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast, an animal toward you. Stop there at this, this point. Uh, he, 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 the, only, the only solution to this problem, this enormous problem of Esau and to us, uh, is, uh, is to see God, to see the big picture. As Calvin said, I went into the schoolhouse of God, and then I understood. You got the big picture? A lot of times we're down in the grass looking at the little minutiae. And that doesn't make sense, and this doesn't make sense. And, and God's plan and purpose is multi-level in purpose. And God could say, I could tell you, but you'd never understand it. And when he came to allow God to counsel him and to tutor him and to give him the bigger picture, picture he gained 20-20 vision of his God while living life in a fallen, broken world. Asaph's solution to the huge problem was found in seeing God in his eternal purpose. It involves seeing God as God actually sees it. And it's to consider the final end of the wicked. Those outside of Christ will be judged and thrown into hell forever and ever, according to the Scriptures. And verse 17 provides the pivot to the whole psalm, this wisdom friend of ours here. 
He enters the schoolhouse of God, the sanctuary of God. Now he clearly realizes that the godless are not so prosperous. And in fact, uh, though he was slipping in verse 2, I nearly slipped when I saw, I knew theology that God is good, but it didn't seem so, and I nearly slipped. He realized, wait a minute, there, those that know not Christ, know not God, are really on the slippery places. Going, going, and almost gone, in fact, forever. He cure as he thought in their apparent prosperity. For in a short time, verses 18 to 20, they will be destroyed and gone, that they are really not the blessed. It is really he, not they, that are the blessed ones. What does it profit a man, Jesus said, if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? What kind of trade-off is that? What would you trade if you knew Christ for your salvation? Would you trade it for the gold in Fort Knox? Would you trade it away for something less? What would you trade? What would a man trade? Uh, what would it profit a man or woman uh, if he gained the whole world? That's a lot of stuff but lose his own soul. That is a bad trade, Jesus tells us. Or depart from me into everlasting fire. The words of the Lord again. Is that prosperity? I think not so. They are on slippery ground. He, Asaph clearly sees they are not secure. Depart from me into everlasting destruction, the Lord's. How terrible is that? And he, now he grieves over his foolish thinking. And don't we do that when we meander into sin and we leave the path of light? And, we, and God finally, in patience, days or weeks or long, brings us back to where we ought to be. And, we, and in our repentance, we go like, Lord, what? forgive me for that. Lord, what was I thinking? I was dumber than, a, than an animal in that. I wasted time. I, 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 you couldn't use me. And, 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 and thank you for bringing me back. That's what he's lamenting here in, in, in verses 21. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in my heart. I was, I was a brute, the old translation puts. I was ignorant. I was like a beast. I was dumber than an animal to you. With apologies to the animal, they're only what God made them to be and do what God made them to do. God made us for so much more being made in his image. Having recovered his spiritual balance, and that's what he does in verses 23 to 26, he catalogs true wealth. Now, this is where I'm going. These are some of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible. They are. And I memorized them in the NIV, so I better not try to uh, do the ESV on it. You know how that is. There'll be an amalgamation, and, of, uh, and I'll, I'll be utterly confused. But uh, the, the psalmist uh, writes here, now wait a minute, I'm the true wealthy. When, I, when God tutored me, I, and he takes an inventory, and listen, listen. Yet, he's, first of all, he says, yet I am always with you. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, the divine accompaniment of God, that God goes with us. Now, you would have think it the other way around, because Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. But the psalmist, by God's direction, put, yet I am always with you. 
And that's a wonderful thing to know that when I go to work, when I go home, when I go into the marketplace, into the highways, that my God goes with me and I go with him. He is mine and I am his. Isn't that wonderful? Yet I am always with you. And second, the second uh, uh, you hold me by my right hand. There it is. Now, sorry to you. How many, some of you are left-handed, right? Two out of three of our children are lefties. How can two righties produce uh, two out of three lefties? David was our only deliverance. He's a righty like us. But uh, right hand in the, old, in the Scriptures is a, is a sign of power, strength. Not the left hand. I'm sorry about that. We did that when Sarah came along. We kind of wanted to favor her uh, right hand. And Dr. Stolzfels, the pediatrician, uh, I said, now, doctor, she seems to be using her left hand a lot. And he, uh, he had his glasses on. He looks over at me. I go, yeah, we've been trying to encourage her right hand writing and all that. And, he, and I just happened to notice that he's writing on his tablet with his left hand. What's wrong? Is something wrong with the left? I said, well, it's a right-handed world. You know, like, uh, I wasn't going to win that one. But this text, the, uh, the picture that's at the right hand is strength. He holds me by his right, at my right hand. He strengthens me. And oh, how I need that. I'm weak and puny, fail, frail and small. Not only with me, but he holds me. I was the kind of father when we walked with our children and we got anywhere near the streets or anything, I'd grab I don't know, hold him by the hand, I held him by the wrist. The hand can slip out. You put that wrist, man, you grab onto that baby. Hold that right there. You're not moving. Don't step into that curb and don't, you know. <laughs> I held on to those cats. It makes me nervous the way some folks with their kids just, holy cow, you know, it takes your breath away a little bit. I walked down the street holding two wrists. So here we go. <laughs> right hand, strength. That's my father. He holds on to me. Even in this topsy-turvy, upside-down world, he's always with me. He lends me his strength. And then third, he said, the text, he guides me with his counsel. Guess what that is? Don't be reading the clouds like the farmer. Uh, you heard that story, right? He was out farming. And he saw the clouds, and it looked like PC. So he came home to his wife, and he said, well, that's it. We're selling the farm. She goes, why? What? What do you think? He said, well, God spoke to me. He did what he said. He said, then she, he said, the clouds, PC. And she, and she, and she said, well, what do, you, what, what do you infer? And she, well, preach Christ. God wants me to go to seminary, sell the farm of that. And she's like, flabbergasted. She goes, how do you know it didn't meant plant corn? <laughs> well, he hadn't thought about that, you know. Don't be don't read, reading the clouds. God has given us this wonderful word. He guides me with his counsel. That's the blessed picture. Here we are in a fallen world, and God, we read the word of God, we study it, the precepts, we find Christ from cover to cover, and we marvel at the wonder of the scriptures. We're the people of the book. He counsels me with his word. Grace Church is known as a, a church that loves the scripture, discipling men and women to be reproducers in the word of God. When I was in college, there was a pastor in, the, in our town up in Clark Summit at Heritage Baptist Church. He, and I'll never forget him. And I don't, I, well, I remember two 
two sermons he preached, but not too much of the content of it. But I, you know what I remember? I remember this. His vision was so bad. And, and, and Pastor Rook was, oh, he's, he was up there in years. And, and, and when he read the text, and I thought, like, this is so powerful. He would read the text like this. He, his, his eyes would be like this, and he'd be reading, and then he'd look at it reading, and i go like, that's an image I never want out of my mind. You guide me with your counsel. It's the blessed book. Is the word of God counseling you? It's God's treasure. Next to salvation, the word of God in your own language is the greatest thing you could have. Did you know that? He wants you to hide it in your heart. He wants you to search the scripture, to be a Berean. You guide me with your counsel. Thank you for that, Lord. I'm the blessed man who doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1. But rather his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he delights in the day and night. It helps me in a world that is dark and broken and filled with tears. That's what Asaph said as he realizes in God's the, the real reality of life and the treasury that is ours. So review again, you're always with me, and and uh, uh, you, you hold me by my right hand and you guide me with your counsel and I need that. And the last thing he says, and after that, after that, after life, you will take me into glory. Now there's a, one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament saint of absent from the body, present instantly in heaven. And afterwards, You'll take me into glory. I'm telling you, that is wealth. That is real wealth. I remember a, a man that helped me in ministry for many, many years. Some of you know Joe Vance. And Joe was a gentle-hearted uh, a servant of the Lord. And uh, I remember one day Joe was in my office and he said, you know, I decided what I'm going to put on my tombstone. You know, like you, Ron. You like you showed me a picture. And I said, well, what's that, Joe? And he said, I'm going to put Psalm 73, 23 to 26, right on my tombstone. I go, like, those are so, that is a, that has, those verses have been loved by God's people from the very beginning. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And then afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And earth holds nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. But God is the hope of my life and my portion forever and ever and ever. Oh, what a... What a wonderful, instructive old friend that helps us. It points out that we indeed are, as belonging to Christ, are the wealthy indeed. What an old friend that helps us and counsels us. As we think about at, at our own death, to be absent from the body and to be present instantly 
with the Lord forever and ever. Well, what can we say? Let me give you a couple lessons for our life from this old friend. Number one, you and I will lose our spiritual balance when we take our eyes off Jesus. We do. We do. We lose our spiritual balance. It's not a road test, you know. Have you been drinking, pull over, walk the line? You know, you can't do it. You've seen films of that and whatnot and all that. Walk backwards and jump up and down. I've seen them actually do that on the side of the road. And a far more serious thing, we lose our balance in life when we take our eyes off Jesus. Do you need any more illustrative picture than, than Peter walking on the water in the storm? I mean, life is a storm. Sometimes it's a little more calm than others. But when we take our eyes off Jesus, whoop, that's it. Where do you go? Mm, that's, uh, that's you and that's me. No matter what before. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Three years ago yesterday, I had my first hip replacement. <laughs> Three years ago, I was thinking about that all the way through. And it was, it was interesting. You know, like I, uh, it was my first major surgery. And I remember counseling many people, praying with people at that point. Now, I'm in, I'm in the bed, and they're giving me all that attention and telling me this and that and all that and what's going to happen. And now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, you know, you think like that. You do think thoughts like that. And to find that keep my eye fixed on Jesus. Wow. We lose our balance when we don't. Number two, if, you're our, if you are a Christian, you are wealthy beyond comparison. Don't be confused with that funny money out there, that monopoly money. Are you good at monopoly? Yeah, I cleaned them out. Broadway and Park Place, right? They had Marvin Gardens and I... I <laughs> that's it. That's paper money. That's all that is. Don't be fooled. There's a reason why they call that fool's gold. It is. It's going to all burn up. You are wealthy indeed. You're a son of the king. Don't be confused by that. Don't be fooled by worldly wealth. Number three, our problem is often envy. Envy. And we're critical of God. I deserve better than this, Lord. It's sin, and we need to repent of it and turn from it. And cry out to God, Lord, forgive me for that. Such a small, puny heart of mine. Confess and turn from that. Lord, help me. Number four, view human life as a, as a full-length film, if you will. That's, this helps me. You know, when stuff happens... You're like, where's God in this? I mean, uh, people say that to you, and, uh, and they'll, they'll wonder that. And, and, and where, well, it's like a full-length, uh, full-feature film. And our life, that's the creation from beginning to end, the plan of God to the return of Christ. And here we are. We're a couple frames here. Maybe. You know, like, oh, no. Eh, did it end there? No, it didn't end there. Read the end of the book. You see how it ends. God be glorified in that. He will be. He's triumphant. It didn't end at Calvary, did it? No, there was three days later, and yet the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the, that's the end and the forever state and the glory of God. And Wow. Number five, Asaph wanted cash, didn't he? 
He wanted cash. He was envious. God wants character. He wants Christ-likeness. That's what he's developing in you and me. That's what he's seeking. It's far more valuable than cash. And number six and last, God offers true wealth through his only son. I don't know if you come to know Christ the Lord. Maybe that's the reason you're here today. Maybe that's the reason God put this in my heart. Friday night, I began to really think about it. Wait, and I about never change. I don't throw any change up. Usually some of you are like, I can't believe he didn't preach. What he... <laughs> but the Lord put this in my heart. And then I began to think. I go like, I wonder, have you come to know the Lord as your Savior? I'd like to help you if you've not. I'd love to pray with you, show you from the Word. Receive the Lord as your Savior and be saved forever from the penalty of your sin. This week is Independence Week. We're going to celebrate that as a nation. Until you come to saving faith, you're in bondage to sin. Whether young or old. I'd like to ask everyone to just bow their head for a moment. I'd like you to ask yourself the question. Lord, do I truly belong to you? Have I really come and confessed my sin and, and seen the, the awfulness of it? Have I repented, Lord, confessing, agreeing with you that I am a sinner and lost certainly not worthy of heaven, not worthy of the Savior? Has there been a point in my life where I, with open, empty, outstretched arms, received you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior? And if you've not, uh, if you've not ever trusted the Lord, and then what Jesus said, born again or born from above. You can do that right now by simply saying, Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my God. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for saving me. If you prayed that, I'd love to talk to you, love to pray with you, love to help you. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful text, this old friend. And I pray, Lord, that we had gird up the loins of our mind and think rightly about this world, about life, about how fast it passes using of our time and our talents and our treasury for you. For afterward comes quickly. You will take me into glory. We're not home yet. There's something to do. And I pray that you'd open the windows of heaven and shower your blessings upon grace. Grace Church, that you would use us as a beachhead for the gospel in this community and around the world that you would stir up our own hearts to love you more and more and more, that we would be people of the book, 
with the Bible before our faces as the days pass oh so quickly. We love you so. Make us a blessing, Lord, to all that we should meet. Dismiss us with your favor now. We love you so. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. We're going to sing, John. We had a closing song, but it goes with next week's message. <laughs> Have a wonderful holiday with your family. Thank you, John. God bless.